Won't you join me in prayer before we read God's holy and inspired word? Lord Christ, we believe in you. Help our unbelief. Open our hearts and minds that we may hear your word and serve you with love, humility, and joy. Amen. We're reading from Philippians 2, uh, verses 1 through 13. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who's at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is the word of the Lord. As we uh, approach Thanksgiving this week, we certainly have a lot to to give thanks for uh, as a community. And uh, I want to especially thank uh, all those who have been working so hard um, on all these property matters that have taken so much attention uh, this fall. Um, We've been blessed uh, by the service of our leaders, and uh, I'm grateful for for each one of them. Uh, As we think about uh, gratitude, Uh, I want to draw your attention to the announcement that you'll find in the bulletin about the ecumenical uh, Thanksgiving service uh, that's coming up uh, tomorrow evening and encourage you to attend. Uh, There's definitely a sense of, uh, in these post-COVID days, of something happening in Madison with churches coming together uh, in new ways, and uh, this is a wonderful way for us as a church to participate in it, and there there are churches from... uh, such a, a large variety of, of traditions and, and, and backgrounds in parts of our city that are coming together at, at this event. And uh, I think it's going to be a really wonderful way to, to experience how the, how the spirit is moving uh, in our city. Uh, as we think about that, uh, different churches coming together, as we think about our uh, new property and our, the hospitality that we want to show towards the, the Hispanic churches that are, that are renting there, the, the topic that we're talking about today is so crucially important. Uh, Because today, uh, we're talking about 
humility. Uh, this is our last message in our fall series on the fruit of the Spirit, and humility is not on the list of the fruit of the Spirit uh, uh, that Paul names there, and I'm going to talk about that in a moment, but uh, it's so essential uh, for uh, any good relationship, especially across differences of, of race or class or culture. Uh, so this fall, we, we've been talking about the fruit of the Spirit and uh, that list of, of virtues that, that Paul names in Galatians, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And, and we've learned a lot uh, about each one of these qualities. And, and throughout, we've seen that really what we're talking about here is the character of Christ. The, the fruit of the Spirit belong to Christ before they belong to us. And we receive the fruit as a gift, as we learn to walk with him, as we believe the gospel, and as we love others, as he has loved us. And one of the images that we've used for the fruit of the Spirit is uh, a large diamond with, with many different facets that you can turn this way and that to examine. Uh, and each of the facets is uh, one of these virtues. Uh, but as you look at one side or the other, each one brings you in to the central reality, which is the spirit of Christ and his work in our lives. This is also why, in addition to the nine uh, fruit of the spirit that Paul names in Galatians, uh, there are many other virtues uh, besides those, those nine that we find, that we find there. This, this diamond has many other sides. And so today, we want to examine humility as one uh, final crucial one. Uh, because without humility, it's impossible to receive uh, the abundant life that, that Jesus promises, to, to be a receiver from him. And, and there's not a better text that we could go to for this theme than what we just heard in uh, Philippians 2. It has, has a lot to teach us about humility. Let's consider three things that we can learn today. First, the, the motivation for humility in verses 1 to 5. Second, the character of humility in verses 6 to 8. And third, the exaltation of humility in verses 9 to 13. The motivation for humility, the character of humility, and the exaltation of humility. Let's start with the motivation for humility. Paul says in verse 1, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Notice how he begins. He says that if you have just a taste of the abundant life of Jesus, then go on to pursue it in relationship with others. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and, humility and, and sympathy, just a bit, then keep going. There's more for you. I love that he begins this way. It's so important because there is no shortage of reasons to be discouraged in our lives. 
you know, we, we fall short at being the people we hope to be. Other people in our lives uh, sometimes don't change as quickly as, as we would like. It would be easy to give up. But what Paul says here is don't focus on that stuff. Focus instead what you've already received by grace. That's what will motivate you to keep going and to pursue humility in relationship with others. In, in, in this verse, Paul is, is talking about the basic blessings of the gospel, what Christ has done for you, you know, the love of God, sharing in the Holy Spirit. And oftentimes, we, we think about these basic beliefs as a way into the Christian life, the, the way to be saved by believing them and being saved. But here, we see Paul using these truths as the motivating power for going deeper in the Christian life. For him, the gospel is not just the door, the way in, but the path that you walk every day. It's not just how we are saved, but how we are transformed. He's saying, remember what God has already done for you, and let that encourage you to keep, to keep going. In verse 2, Paul urges the believers who have tasted life with God to be united together in, in the deepest possible way. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And to understand what he's saying here, I think we need to make a distinction between uh, what we could call unity and uniformity. Uniformity is when everyone is exactly the same or, or thinks alike on every point. But unity is when people who are different are united by something greater than themselves. And what Paul is calling for here, for here is, is unity, not uniformity. Now let me, let me show you why. When he, when he says be of the same mind or uh, be of one mind, he doesn't mean that each individual believer will be the, exactly the same, but that they focus together they focus their minds on the same thing. Uh, to have the same love means to love the same thing. What really gets at this is the, the Greek word that's translated uh, here as being in full accord. Uh, the Greek word is the word simpsyche. Sim uh, means same, and uh, psyche means soul. So literally, to, to be in full accord means to be together in soul, uh, to be soul brothers or, or soul sisters. That, that's what he's talking about here. That's simpsyche. In English, we use a similar word. It's actually a Greek word, the word symphony. You know, if, if simpsyche means together in soul, what, what does symphony mean? It means together in sound. Uh, in a symphony, you have different instruments that together produce harmonious music. In the same way, to be a part of a simpsyche, a simpsyche in the church means to have people who, who may be different in all sorts of ways, racially or culturally, socially, coming together as one. The virtue that makes a simpsyche possible, that makes relationships like these possible, is the virtue of humility. 
Without humility, our self-centeredness always gets in the way of our participation in the symphony. We want our instrument to be louder than the others. We're, we're playing our own song rather than participating in the harmony. And this self-centeredness can take two different forms. On the one hand, there's a kind of self-centeredness that's based in fear, when, you, when you're fearful of other people. And, and when, when you're fearful of others, you often cut yourself off from them, uh, especially people who are different from you, by hiding from them or by avoiding them. On the other hand, there's a kind of self-centeredness that is based in pride and arrogance. Uh, this is when you look down on others who are not a part of your tribe or, or share your beliefs. And both fear and pride can make us self-centered. You know, one is more vulnerable and the other is more aggressive, but both cut us off from relationship uh, because we're so consumed with ourselves. This is what makes humility so important. Humility turns us away from ourselves and towards other people. In verses 3 and 4 of, of our text today, Paul gives two, two very practical solutions to deal uh, with our fear and our pride. First, he says, in humility, regard others as better than yourself. Regard others as better than yourself. When, when you do this, it cuts away your pride. He says, when you come into relationship with other people, don't assume that you are better than anyone else. In fact, start from the opposite assumption that others are better than you. When you do this, you can't be prideful. I encourage you to try it. When you consider someone better than yourself, it makes you want to listen and to learn from them. You assume that there is something for you to receive from them. Second, Paul says, let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. This cuts away your fear, because when you are focused on what others need, you can't be absorbed by a fearful self-protection. This means starting from the assumption that other people's needs matter as much as your own. 1 John 4.18 says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. And when you love your neighbor as yourself in, in this kind of way, you want to bridge any gap between you and them to serve their needs. So humility is what it looks like to live free from pride and free from fear with other people. And this is the kind of character that we see above all in the person and work of Jesus. So let's look at the character as Paul describes it here in verses six to eight, the character of humility that we see in Christ. There, there are three things to mention here. How he used his privilege, how he used his power, and how he used his purpose. First, notice how he used his privilege. Jesus shared equality with God. That's what the text says. 
But Paul says that though he was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. The word form in English sounds like something that might only be an external quality of something. As if Jesus was a shapeshifter, you know, uh, taking the form of God and then the form of a slave. But that's not what the word form meant in Greek thinking. The form of something in Greek is not its external shape, but its essence. In Platonic philosophy, for example, the, the forms are the eternal realities that are reflected in this world. So to say that Jesus was in the form of God was to say that he really was God in his essence. Not just that he appeared to be God, but that he was God. And he didn't give up that essence in the incarnation, but he took the form of a slave to show that he also shared the essential qualities of a servant, of a slave. He used his privilege as the Son of God to reveal that humility and divinity are not in conflict. For Jesus, they go together. Second, we see Christ's humility in how he used his power. Often people will say that Jesus gave up his power, and, and it's true that if he was the Son of God, he had unbelievable, unimaginable power available to him that he chose not to use, not to exploit, in order to defeat his persecutors or to avoid going to the cross. But it's not just that he didn't use his power, but that in Christ we learn what power really means. Uh, the author, Andy Crouch, puts it like this. As the early Christians reflected on Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, they came to a different conclusion about power. Precisely because they were witnesses to Jesus' resurrection after a violent death, the New Testament writers could no longer acquiesce to the idolatrous fiction that violence is the truest form of power. Instead, they had seen with their eyes and touched with their hands evidence of a much greater power at work in the world than Rome could muster. Jesus is not so much giving up his power, but revealing what real power looks like. This is the power of self-sacrificial love that we find in him on the cross. So we've seen how he used his privilege, how he used his power, but third, we see Christ's humility and how he used his purpose. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For some reason, we sometimes have negative connotations of obedience, as if obedience is something that must be forced unwillingly. But that's not really what obedience means. The kind of obedience that we see in Christ is not unwillingness, but the exact opposite, the, the willingness to do whatever was needed to fulfill the mission given by the Father to save humanity. He was obedient to do what was necessary, even at the cost of his life. As Jesus said in John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And this is what Jesus did. He made it his purpose to serve others. 
So we see the character of humility in how Jesus used his privilege. Uh, he is the servant king. We see his humility in how he used his power and self-sacrificial love. And we see his humility in how he used his purpose to serve others. When you see humility like this, it has the power to melt your heart and, and make you want it for yourself. Let me offer an illustration from literature. In Tolstoy's great novel, Anna Karenina, in addition to the story of Anna and her lover Vronsky and her husband Alexei, there's a parallel story in the book about another couple, uh, the wealthy estate owner Levin and his wife Kitty. And at one point in the story, very soon after their marriage, Levin's brother Nikolai is dying from consumption in a boarding house. Nikolai was an impoverished alcoholic. Uh, he was estranged from his family. Uh, but Levin and Kitty go to care for him in the final days of his life. And in the room of the dying man, uh, the two of them, uh, Levin and Kitty, they, they have two very different reactions. Uh, Levin is overwhelmed by the ugliness of his brother's death, and, and he's immobilized. But Kitty goes immediately to work, uh, bathing Nikolai and speaking tenderly to him. Here's how Tolstoy describes the scene. Levin did not know what to say, how to look, how to walk. To speak of unrelated things seemed to him offensive, impossible. To speak of death, of dark things, also impossible. To be silent, also impossible. If I look, I'm afraid he'll think I'm studying him, if I don't look, he'll think I'm thinking of something else. If I walk on tiptoe, he'll be displeased. If I stomp around, it's embarrassing. But Kitty obviously did not think about herself and had no time to. She thought about the dying man because she knew something and it all turned out well. She told him about herself and about her wedding and smiled and pitied and caressed him and spoke of cases of recovery and it all turned out well. She didn't think about herself. Kitty's response of compassion uh, transforms her husband's uh, view of her and, and their whole marriage. Eventually, in the story, it leads to Levin's acceptance of the Christian faith because it, it finally helps him understand the beauty of Christ's humility. He'd always assumed that he was the superior one in his relationship with Kitty, especially intellectually but he's humbled by her compassion. He sees that in the face of his brother's suffering, his own self-centeredness only became more pronounced. He was so self-conscious that he, he couldn't do anything. But Kitty wasn't thinking about herself, but only of Nikolai and his needs. This is the character of humility. So we've talked about the motivation for humility and taking away our fear and our pride. We've talked about the character of humility. Finally, let's, let's talk about the exaltation of humility because what we see in the last section of this text is that the humility of Jesus is not just one virtue among others, but that the Christian faith elevates humility in, in the most surprising way. Well, let me explain. Verse 9 says, that God highly exalted Jesus and gave him the name that is above every name. 
What is this name? It says that God gave him the name that is above every name. But you might think, well, that's easy. Uh, His name is Jesus. But there's a lot more going on here. At his birth, you'll remember, the angel appears to Mary. We're going to look at this next week. And instructs Mary to give her child uh, the name Jesus. He's given a name at his birth. But here, when he is exalted, after his death and resurrection, he's given a name again. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, not at the name Jesus, but at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Here is the name that Jesus is given. He's given the name Lord. Both first century Romans and the Jewish people would have understood what Paul was saying here, and they would have been shocked. The the Romans called the emperor, Caesar, Lord. In any Roman city like Philippi, statues on the street declared Caesar divine. Town meetings and sport events were dedicated to Caesar's glory. The people were required to proclaim ultimate allegiance to Caesar And when they did that, they called him Lord, Kurios. So for Christians to say that Jesus Christ was Lord was was not just shocking, it was dangerous. And in a different way, the word Lord had a special meaning in the Jewish tradition. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word Lord, Kurios, is the translation that's used for God's proper name, which is always written in our Bibles with with all caps. So look at me uh, with the passage I put on the Reflections page uh, today from Isaiah 45. We read in these verses from Isaiah 45, For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone forth in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue swear. You see what he's saying? God, the Lord, the God of the Old Testament, is claiming absolute exclusive worship, and he's saying, to me, every knee shall bow, and every tongue swear. So we go back to to our text today from Philippians 2, and what do we find? Paul uses the language of Isaiah 45 to describe Jesus. God gives Jesus his own name, Lord. Paul says that what was true of God is true of Jesus. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bend and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What does this mean, and what does it show us about humility? It shows us that in Jesus, we are given the ultimate revelation of God himself. His humility is not just a temporary moment in his story. It is what exalts him. 
If you want to know who God is, Paul is saying, look at Jesus. Meditate on his humility, his self-giving love, his sacrifice. Jesus doesn't just illustrate good character for us. He shows us God's heart. Let me end with one more illustration of how to think about this. Uh, the 1989 movie, uh, My Left Foot, is based on a true story about an Irish boy with cerebral palsy named Christy Brown, played brilliantly in the film by Daniel Day-Lewis. And Christy is unable to control any part of his body except the toes on his left foot. And as he's growing up, everyone, including his family, believe that Christy Brown is not only physically disabled, but that he's also mentally disabled because he can't speak. And he's treated as an imbecile by the people in his town. But one day, he's lying on the floor, and someone leaves a piece of chalk on the ground near him. With the toes of his left foot, he reaches out, he picks up the chalk, and he painstakingly scrawls the word mother across the floor. His family sees it, and, and they're blown away. They, they realize that though they had dismissed and, and scorned him, that he was a fully capable, intelligent, precious human being. His, his father is so thrilled that he takes Christy on his shoulders and runs to the local pub. This is Ireland. He, he goes into the bar, and he holds Christy up, and he proclaims, this is Christy Brown, my son, genius. I love this scene because it illustrates what God the Father, I believe, is doing for the Son in Philippians 2 and in his exaltation. Though the humility of Jesus looks like weakness, something that our world might dismiss and scorn, God highly exalts him and affirms him. This is my Son. This is what real power real character, real love, looks like. Friends, when you worship Jesus as Lord, and you make him ultimate in your life, his love and his character become your aspiration. Not so that others might see your goodness, but so that they might see his goodness. He knows our sin and weakness, but he is never ashamed to move close to the needy. He is the lion, and he is the lamb. And his commitment to you knows no bounds. And he will be at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In, his mo in, a, in a moment, we're going to sing this line uh, in our song of response. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. Seeing him in his glory and in his grace will humble you, but it will also empower you to love others as you have been loved. The Lord says to us today, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. 
Father God, we give you thanks today for who you are and all that you have done for us and for the world uh, in the gospel. We look to you today and ask you to show us more of your glory. Uh, teach us to love as you love. Help us to serve as you serve. Empower us to give as you give so that we might be transformed by your grace and the world might know that we have a hope and a future uh, in you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.